Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg, co-founder and CEO of Bolster, and I'm here today with my friend, Aimé Lapic. Aimé uh, and I went to college together, um, so we've been friends for, um, what does that make it? Five, six years, right? It's five or six years, exactly. Uh, and Aimé is now uh, the CEO of Hannah Anderson, a very cool, uh, I don't know how you describe it, clothing company. Premium Fashion. Sustainable Kids Clothing. Premium Sustainable Kids Clothing. Okay. I have been in a Hannah Anderson shop and bought stuff online for my kids over the years. Uh, and uh, Aimé is also a former uh, CMO of a couple of great brands, GoPro and Pandora. Uh, and she's also a board member at public company Cardlytics. Um, Amy, it's great to have you here. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Matt, I'm so excited to be able to just chat with you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, uh, you're welcome and let's dive in. So um, you have had a phenomenal career and you know your current chapter is CEO. Um, and it's always easier to look at these things like in the rearview mirror as opposed to the windshield, but you've had um, a string of experiences over the five years since college, as we said, um, that uh, you know, really, I think prepared you incredibly well uh, to uh, to take the reins of uh, of a brand like Hannah Anderson. Um, so I'd love to just sort of walk through that with everyone. Excellent. I'm so happy to do it. I I wish it had been as easy to predict that it was all going to happen um, when we graduated from college. But of course, these things are completely unpredictable. Um, and I, but I do like that. As you're going, you and I are going to talk about. I've had such a diverse set of experiences, but they've all built in some way upon each other. Um, and so, when you look back, it looks very planful. But to all the folks graduating from college now, don't be worried. It will work out, and each experience you have will help you get to the next experience. You don't have to have it mapped out right. for the next twenty plus years. And it won't be what you expect, whatever it is. So That's exactly right. Um, so, um, so you, like me coming out of college, were a management consultant. Um, and I remember you worked at Maricon, uh, then you worked at McKinsey. I can't remember if that was before business school or after business school. Um, when you think about the sort of the consulting chapter, um, before you moved into operating roles, um, you know, what's the biggest thing you got out of that? And what was the, what was the decision to move into an operating role as opposed to staying in services or, you know, doing banking or something else? Absolutely. Um, so honestly, I learned how to spot trends and pull insights from data as a consultant that then allowed me to then think about recommend, you know, at the time as an advisor, recommendations of how the business could change. So I can remember very distinctly, honestly, working in the wine industry as a consultant and looking, doing an analysis of of the number of stars or the rating of the wine versus the price points and seeing literally there was no correlation at all between wines that did really well with Wine Spectator and where they were priced. And then thinking, well, there's got to be another reason why some of these wines are really, you know, selling really well. Um, and so I had to look for more data, et cetera. And, and that kind of drive to understand how the data then kind of shows up in the results of a company is what I learned from consulting, frankly. Um, and I have been a data junkie ever since. So that was a really great chapter. Um, the second thing I learned from consulting is I learned how to, how to number one, pick a recommendation, like go through all the options and pick something and be hypothesis driven. 
um, because it does help you prioritize in the end. So that was really helpful. For yeah, me. for sure. I, I always tell people that um, I, I, I should have paid them to be a consultant. Like I got would, so much out of those years. I totally agree. I mean, I, 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 I was lucky enough, um, and I know you know this because you had a similar experience of being able to go to Harvard Business School and learning uh, business administration on the ground at, at HBS. But I feel like I got so much more out of my five years as a consultant in terms of like working across, you know, I want to think of like 12 different industries, you know, twin, 20 different companies all in. I mean, I had just so many different diverse experiences. Yeah, really, sure. really helpful. Yeah. Um, so the, your second question of like how I decided to leave consulting and go into an operating yeah, like what, what was the What was the spark? I so my last stint in consulting, I was working mostly in retail and consumer products um, function for McKinsey um, out of the Atlanta office, and I loved understanding consumer brands and what was what kind of made the difference of one brand versus another. Mm -hmm. um, and at that time, remember, I'm just a, a year or two now out of college. This is way in the way back machine the dot-com thing was happening, right? So there's this big thing called the internet that was coming along. And it for someone who liked data and wanted to understand what made consumers tick and how to drive demand and, and, and literally how to understand everything you could about customers, understanding and working for an internet company was a thing at that time. And so I left to go work for a little startup also founded or founded by a McKinsey alum called Home Shark at the time. And we provided online mortgages. And my job, actually, one of my first jobs was to rebrand it to something that wasn't scary. Um, so we rebranded it to Iown.com, like I own my own home. Um, and I had just a wealth of experience learning lots of things like how do you do deals and like how do you do business development deals and how do you add ancillary products and services um, that customers are actually going to want. And how do you read the data of what customers want and don't want? It was, it was amazing. A great. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's so funny that oh, I forgot it was called home shark. That was like the classic .com name. And there was some website that was like the name your company machine where it was like the first word is a whatever. And the second word could be an animal. So, yeah, it's so true. <laughs> and there was like a shark on our actual homepage. It was horrible. Like take a bite out of your mortgages. And I was like, we're literally turning off more people than we're attracting. <laughs> um, so you worked in a couple of things that uh, that were in the financial services space before it was called FinTech. Yes, I um, did. And I think you ended up with, with something that uh, was purchased by Citi or Chase, right? Well, Ion was purchased by um, Citi and became the online mortgage portal. Right. Um, and then I you know, went to work for a company called uh, Providian Financial, right. which, was, which was literally purchased by Washington Mutual, which was then purchased by Bank right. of America. I mean, went through multiple iterations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my first job there was actually working for their online mortgage um, portal, which was called Get Smart. So again, these... These these glitchy names are yeah. um, like you'll be smarter if you can do your own financial services. So I so my job at Get Smart was to be kind of the kind of that era's version of a customer experience officer or a chief customer officer. And so I I own the email channel and I own online product development and I own I actually owned um, the customer service folks too the folks who were answering emails um, of customers. Um, and it, that was an amazing experience because it was holistically everything having to do with the customer journey, 
um, which was very fun. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting about that is, um, yeah, that was, that was a long time ago in the, in the scheme of like how organizations have developed and it was working at a startup. And, um, you know, I think that philosophy of like the customer experience is, is king, uh, and lots of stuff feed it and can be, uh, sort of organized around it, um, was not really an intentional theme then so much as like, well, you were the person that was there and you were doing a bunch of jobs. Right. They um, gave, I basically owned everything that no one else owned. Basically, right, which is kind of what I had at Movie Phone. Like, I was running the online business, and whatever there was to do, you know, including customer support emails and everything else, was just kind of there. Right. Um, how how has that shaped your view over your career of um, of the the role of the customer experience um, or the owner of the customer experience on the executive team? I have such a deep. Exp- respect and admiration for people who bring that that holistic mindset to the table of truly thinking about all things customer related. And I've come to expect that from every executive, um, whether they're the head of, you know, the CFO, how much does, does the CFO really appreciate customer experience um, to obviously the head of in kids and baby merchandising and product, it's all about the product. And so how much does the head of product really think about the whole customer experience from soup to nuts um, to the marketing head of marketing as well. And I, I think when companies fail is when they don't keep the customer experience and the customer kind of center focused. Um, It is not, does not, should not be owned by just one person or one executive. There are elements that should be owned by one executive, but everyone should be thinking that way. Um, and that's a hard jump for a lot of executives to make. Look, it's hard for a lot of executives to think cross-functionally, <clears throat> let alone thinking about something that's kind of outside of their function. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and I guess in my my last X number of roles, I have tried to teach it by asking a lot of questions, mm. honestly, and by I'm always coming back to like, what does the customer see? Who is the customer? How are we appealing to them either through product offering or through everything from like in my current job, it's time time to receive a package. Like if you order pajamas for Halloween, you want it before Halloween. Are we going to be able to fulfill that on that or not, for example? And so I ask a lot of questions that are that get to what is the customer actually um, experiencing through everything we do. Um, all right. So before we move to the next chapter of your career, which is the, re- going. the retail chapter, um, uh, what are your thoughts on on fintech today? Like, what does fintech today look like relative to what it looked like in the late '90s? So, I in the late '90s, I feel like we were. Uh, I don't. I hate to say this because I, I don't want to crush anyone's feelings, but we were winging a lot of things. So we were operating with very little data to make decisions. Um, and we were offering an off the shelf, traditional financial service products through a website interface. Right. That was basically- That was web, that was web 1.0. That yeah. was web 1.0. Today, yeah. it's, you know, think about personalization at scale. Like today, in, an individual can receive a rate, you know, depending on what the financial product is, the rate that's very customized to them, the product that's very customized to them, um, and they'll be cross-sold and upsold, like literally kind of everything that they might need and and more, but all coming back to 
What does the company know about that person based on the data? We didn't have any of that back in the day. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's a very different model today and it's um, it's evolved so much more. I, I actually think it's, the idea of personalization is positive in my mind because I think it does fulfill what customers actually really need. Um, I mean, at Providian got its kind of claim to fame by actually selling to folks who couldn't necessarily afford credit, credit right. um, at, at exorbitant interest rates. And luckily I didn't have to participate in that side of the business, but that's how they made their money. And so it was the antithesis of personalization because it was basically trying to ram one product down everyone's throat versus I know you, I see you, I see your credit history, I can respond right. in kind. Yeah, I mean, the explosion of fintech in the last few years is just uh, is just amazing. It is amazing. And I'm not, I mean, I am, I'm no, my, no means an expert in it, Matt, at all. So I have kind of, I've kept my focus on the consumer products and, <laughs> and services as opposed to financial services. Yeah. Well, all right. So that's a good bridge uh, to the next chapter of your career, which was, uh, uh, you know, retail, Banana Republic, Gap, uh, yes. and then moving into Pandora and GoPro. I don't know in your, in your mind, if you put those together or if you have the well, retail I and then the digital separate. I feel like I grew up at the Gap. I was at the Gap almost 14 years. And yeah. I my very first job, so talk about kind of this, everything sort of builds upon each building block of your life. I went from um, online mortgages to, I for a stint at Providian, I, I owned co-branded credit cards and I did partnerships with different companies like Home Shopping Network to come up with a co-branded credit card for them. And then I went to work for Banana Republic initially running the P&L of the credit card program. So you were a Lux credit card member or you were a basic credit card member. And my job was CRM or customer relationship marketing through credit cards. That was before we had a, what we fondly called at the time, multi-tender loyalty and what everyone calls today a loyalty program. Um, so, and that was my next step. And I entered Banana Republic as this kind of financial services person within the brand. And then I quickly took on more around brand management, around partnerships, um, and and started to build my career within all of marketing versus just a, a small sliver of marketing. Um, and I was lucky at the Gap. I, I learned a lot about customers from the stores aspect first, and then eventually the online aspect. So I had a couple of different chapters within Gap in my career. So and I went from Banana Republic um, to the actual outlet division, both Banana Republic factory stores and Gap Outlet. And my job was to run marketing for the, A, to create a marketing division for, for the outlet division, um, and then to actually run the international business, all of outlet as a GM of the international business. And that was a great stint because we turned around a, well, in the industry was a five-year traffic decline to the outlet business. Mm -hmm. and, and it became the true profit driver for all of Gap and Banana, um, the outlets. That's a little known fact that they're so high margin that they boost the specialty brands. Um, and then- And I is that true? That's true generally in retail, like the outlets? Yes, it depends on the size. Yeah. It depends on the size of the outlet channel, but in general, they're much more profitable than the regular price brands. Um, and you can see why, right? So A, um, they make less quality product and right. sell it for- a lower price than the specialty brands, but not that much lower. And they they pay far less in their leases and their right. rental agreements and their operations. They don't have to have the same level of customer service um, 
or experience. But if you could give customers a little bit more than what they were experiencing at your competitors, it was easy to gain share because right. the outlets in general are just not really well run. Yeah. Um, so that was a fantastic experience for me. And then I got to do it internationally in right. all through Europe and Japan and opened up China and phenomenal experience um, on the global side as well. So love that chapter. And I feel like I became a retailer mostly because I was focused on the stores and how the stores right. worked. And um and it, there was a ton of learning there all around, again, customer experience, but really around profit and loss and how do you how do you drive a profitable operation? Yeah. Well, and and you know, obviously leading into your into your current um chapter quite a bit. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what's interesting is the things in between those two. So Pandora and uh and GoPro, right? Super interesting yeah. businesses, not clothing retail and outlets. Uh, at, at all. So I did. So my last two years of the gap, I was the CMO of Banana Republic and the head of the e-com business at Banana. So I own BananaRepublic.com, which was a $380 million business at the time. So it was a substantial business. From there, I went to be the CMO of Pandora, the digital radio company. And I ran the subscription business for Pandora and really grew the subscription business. They, Everybody thinks of Pandora as free radio. Um, with an ad-based model, and we started selling paid subscriptions, right. and that became very quickly the main profit driver for the company. Um, that leap, going from retail stores predominantly, and then a little, you know, two years back in e-com, but truly retail to an app-based company was a big leap for me. Um, and uh, one of the things I have learned in my career is play into your strengths as you take on areas that you're not as strong in or maybe new to you. So first time I really overtly did that was in the outlets when I leaned into marketing, but then I took on the GM GN capabilities of running the international stores. I did the same thing at Pandora. I leaned into marketing. I had been the CMO of Banana Republic. So I knew a lot about marketing. I leaned into marketing, but I didn't know a lot about app-based marketing or right. or or how to drive a subscription business. I knew how to drive a loyalty business because I had done that earlier in my career, but subscriptions are different. And so I leaned into the marketing aspect while I took on these other areas and just frankly asked a lot of questions. Um, and I, I think that's, if I had to give one piece of advice from like, when you make those kind of transitions, don't be afraid to ask a lot of questions. Many oh, times the people sure. who, who are running the businesses haven't, they haven't even asked that question because they think they know the answer because they're so used to the business. Or they think they're supposed to know the answer. And they think they're supposed to know the answer. So, you know, every question, you know, they, they everybody says this, there are no dumb questions. There truly are no dumb questions. Like you, you really can learn something from every question. Yeah. So I asked a lot of questions and I leaned in hard um, and amplified what I was, you know, had experience in. Um, and then, you know, great things happen. We we were able to position the company to get bought by SiriusXM. That was a positive thing for the company financially. Um, I stayed on for eight months, um, but my job had moved to New York and I was very much a Bay Area person. And so I then looked, I took a mini sabbatical of five months um, to reconnect with my children, which is very important to me. More on that later if you want to chat about that. Um, and then I uh, took a job at GoPro um, serendipitously at the right time. I took a job right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and uh, GoPro at the time had a about $100 million e-commerce business. And literally over two years, we grew it to over $400 million. 
and we took our subscription business, which was pretty small and grew it to almost 2 million subscribers. So I knew how to do, again, knew how to run e-commerce, knew how to run um, subscription businesses from my lat from my previous yeah. two jobs. So I took it to something I knew nothing about, which is action cameras. Right. I had never worked in hard goods before. Um, luckily I had a GoPro. <laughs> I liked the customer experience. So I believed in the product. Um, it's amazing. GoPros are incredible for what they do. Um, so I had a lot of passion for it, but I basically had never done um, hard goods and it's, it is a different business model. It's very different. Yeah. And so the question I have, if you think about all of those things and sort of the retail and, and digital and hard goods chapter, um, one of the things that that I was kind of reflecting on um, as I was preparing for this was you worked for a, a number of years, right? 14 years for what, what you would call as a, a sustaining brand, right? Banana and Gap were around a long time before you were there and a long time after you were there. Um, and Pandora and GoPro were, you know, ascendant brands. Um as a marketer, how do you sort of reflect on the difference between those two types of jobs? Like customer experience is obviously important to everything. Like lots of things are the same, but what, what's kind of the critical difference? It, there is something about um, trying, when you're in a ascending brand, there is something about trying to figure out what the true need that that brand is fulfilling in a different way. So uh, there are a lot of executives, to your point, who have been in marketing at The Gap and Banana Republic, and they've all done a wonderful job. And the company has been around a very long time. Um, and and the need of what each of those brands was solving isn't all that different, right? People need clothes and how do you how are you fashionable? So your take on it might be different for the time period. Mm -hmm. um, and, may, and maybe that your take on it is more about relevance for this cultural moment. But specifically for Pandora. Pandora was a brand that very well-known, like 90% brand awareness, like super well-known. But Spotify had been this challenger brand who had come in and started to take a lot of market share. And so Pandora's biggest opportunity was, hey, we have to pivot and go after um, what all of these customers are saying they need. And that's, they don't want ad-based radio anymore. They want They want playlists. They want to be they want to be driving what they hear versus listening to what we want to serve them. And Pandora had this unique take, still has this unique take. I'm still a Pandora listener I'm, and subscriber on being able to serve you, uh, Matt or Ame, um, your next favorite song based on what you've listened to in the past. And right. that is that's a brilliant thing. I love it. I always find out new songs that I love from Pandora. But they could do it in a way where I could also build playlists based on kind of my four favorite songs and then easily get to the next four favorite songs. And I could pay money for that, right? And they had different, they have three different tiers of, of um, subscriptions. And that, that business was nascent when I got there. And that is that we had to figure out how to meet, how to take what Pandora was good at and meet where the customer was really quickly so that we didn't continue to lose market share in the same way we had been losing it before. And so as a marketer, it was all about like, what need are we trying to solve that customers are telling us they have because they're not getting it from us? And then how do we use our strengths to, to basically have a differentiated position to meet that need? Um, and that that was pretty cool, honestly, to be able to do that so effectively yeah. at Pandora. 
Yeah, and and a very different challenge than the outlet business, like the international business at Gap or the outlet business. So yes, honestly, yeah. very different challenge. Yeah. Um, yes. All right. So you're now in your first CEO job, CEO of Hannah Anderson. You've been there for a year, just about a year. Almost fourteen months. Fourteen months. Okay. Yes, I, and that was a big deal because I wanted to pass the year mark pretty seamlessly and be yeah. able to tell the company I'm not going anywhere. I'm here to stay. So you've been there fourteen months. Yes. And um. You know, with my recruiter hat on, given what we do at Bolster, I'm now like looking at your resume mentally and thinking like you were an obvious choice for them uh, with all of the experience that you had had. Um, and so the, I have a couple questions about this. It hasn't been a long chapter yet, but the first one is um, the the you came in as CEO, right? So you weren't promoted from within, but it's your first CEO job. Right. Um, how has that transition been for you? Like, what are a couple of things you've learned or challenges you've had uh, making the, the leap from CXO to CEO? Yeah. You know, honestly, I always thought the hardest transition in life was going from being an amazing individual contributor being to a first time manager. Yeah. And I, I can remember the first time I had one direct report and how Every, hard it was. Everyone, everyone who's been through that remembers that. Yes. And and yeah. it, it and it was hard because I went from, you know, being really good at my little job to like having to figure out how to empower and give enough to this person, direct report. So they felt really good at their individual job while I was still getting my stuff done. Boy, that was hard. Right. I always say anybody who can like make that transition seamlessly, they they probably will be CEO or at least a senior executive somewhere because um, that's hard. Becoming CEO was was kind of like that for me. I went, I transitioned from being really an expert in my field around marketing and digital capabilities um, to running things that aren't necessarily my strong suit. So while I had had exposure to everything, right? So obviously exposure to PL responsibility, obviously exposure even to distribution centers or to sourcing and um, and merchandising from a product perspective, I had never managed in most most of those fields before. Um, and that, and so figuring out very quickly how to be not just a manager in title, but an actual leader and someone who the the team needs and relies on um, in a positive way, not a dependent way, but a positive way, an insp an inspirational way. It is continues to be a work in progress. Like that's, I, I think I'm constantly trying to get better at that, constantly trying to figure out that natural balance of empowering the team to do what they need to do while still feeling like I do have experience in some areas and I definitely have a lot of questions. Always come back to asking a lot of questions to help them, you know, help help deliver and, and uncover insights that on which they can act. Um, so I'm constantly balancing of my my natural curiosity with their expertise to empower them and I really view my job as an, as prioritization like how do I help them prioritize um hopefully not every day but at least on a regular basis so that people feel like they're being able to make a material difference with the time that they have it's just like being a first time manager how do you get what what you need to get done and empower and lead and prioritize for that one direct report it's very similar. It's just on a big scale. Yeah, it's a bigger scale. And it's, um, you know, I think it's it's managing some things that you really don't understand. At all. Like when you right. get promoted from the, you know, the the uh, communications coordinator to the, 
Marcom manager, like you kind of know what everything is because it's all the people that have been sitting next to you. Right. Um, but that's really different than having a CTO report to you if you've never managed technology or a CFO if you've never managed finance. Yes. Or, or you know, we or, or COO if you've never managed the distribution center. Right. I've, I've never managed a distribution center. Yeah. So, but the, yeah. I think you're right. I think the key to that is just asking the questions. Yes. And I would say my largest surprise, and I, I want all senior executives to just think about this, is that be careful what you say to mm-hmm. do. Because whatever you say to do, people will uh, yes. go do. People will go so do. You, yes. They will go do it. And, and they won't really ask questions, even if they think you're insane. <laughs> they, so you need to couch everything with, have you yes. thought about this? Or here's one way to look at it. What are your ideas? Or here's some some thought, some thought starters. Please add to it. I know I don't have all the right answers, et cetera. So you need yes. to really be careful, especially as CEO. They want to, everybody wants to do well, right? They want to. They want to do well. They want to be successful. And they unfortunately think you have all the right answers. Right. Well, I think it's it's particularly true of CEOs. And then within CEO hood, it's particularly true of doing skip level meetings. Right. Because the people like your CFO is going to is going to tell you you're saying something dumb if you're of saying course. Dumb, or of like, course. if you have the right CFO, they will. Right. But like if you're having a hallway conversation with a marketing manager and you're thinking out loud about something like that could turn into a. It will be it'll become a huge project. And and in the world that we now live in, post-pandemic world, where where you can have a meeting with 40 some odd people and not really realize 40 some odd people are listening to what you're saying. Yeah. Which happens, I, I mean, I meet all the time with large groups of people, like because they want exposure, they have a point of view, they sure. they're learning, et cetera. You got to be really careful about what you say right. in those meetings. How many employees do you guys have? We have a little over 300, especially at peak when we get to seasonal peak, because we've yeah. got a large contingent in the distribution center. Okay. And then we, ha- we have our own wholly owned call center as well. Okay. Um, all right. So I have kind of a uh, crystal ball question for you um, around retail. Uh, so what what is the future of retail going to look like? Um, you know, malls all over the country are struggling, right? The, the pandemic made it even more clear to everyone that you don't have to leave your house to buy things. Um, and yet, you know, you got to feel like there's there's a, a future in in-person shopping. Oh, yeah. How is that going to shake out over the next 10 years? It's a really good question. So so um, Hannah Anderson is now 100% D2C. Um, we closed our stores er, like serendipitously early in 20. Um, and our business took off. Right. Like COVID was, you know, not a gift, yeah. but it was like really powerful for the business. Right. Um, and we're now thinking, how what is our long-term omni-channel strategy? Because I don't think in-person shopping is dead by any stretch of the imagination. Um, what we have heard from from our our customers, especially new moms, the way they discover brands is in person. They browse, mm. they look, they try to get ideas, et cetera. And so there's got to be, I think, a balance of allowing um, people, consumers to discover new brands and new products in person, along with being the ease of shopping on your phone, right? That synergy and that balance, I think, is going to be very real. Um, having it's said probably, that- It's, it's probably yeah. going to take people- like a bunch of runs at it to get it right. I think so. I think so. And it depends on the industry too. So if I look at what beauty has done, 
through social commerce and through influencers, that is a whole channel that didn't exist five years ago, right? And that's all about like, I'm talking to, you know, they're talking to my daughter. I'm talking to the tween or the teen that is getting ready and wants to try different skincare products and they're showing her or him um, how to wear them, et cetera. And, and they're selling it right there. And so that is, that's a whole new channel that is still retail, but it's very different than traditional malls or traditional, um, or traditional website for sure. Yeah. All right. I have two more questions, totally different topics. Um, the first one is around being uh, a CEO and being a parent. Ooh. How, or, or even a CXO, right? You've been a senior executive, hardworking senior executive for a long time. How have you learned to to bring balance to those two things? Like what what's one tip you can give to anyone who's listening to this that that runs a department, a, runs a division, runs a company? Um, I would say you can do both really well. So think about this. Like you can be a senior executive and be a parent for sure. You can't do both really well every single day um, in every, in the same way. And I really do think your priorities have to shift by day almost. Like like the way I think about it is, and and I, I say this to, to teams as I manage them, like literally everything is a phase and whatever you're going through right now is, is a phase that will end. So sometimes you have to work really hard. Like I've got a board meeting coming up. I'm gonna work really hard on getting ready for that board meeting. Um, and that means I won't be able to spend as much time with my kids. However, today was my daughter's first day of school. And you bet you, I drove her to school. I took the first day pictures with all of her friends. That was my priority. And that came way before work came. So I just think you have to make those distinct decisions every day almost in terms of like which one, which priority is going to win out and how do I how do I balance? Because you can do it both effectively. You just have to think about like when does it matter in different circumstances? Yeah, I would- that's, a great, that's a great way to think about it. Yeah. Uh, all right. My last question for you is about boards. So you've been an independent board member for a while now, uh, right? Go as a CXO. You've been on a public board. Or you're still on a public board. I think you were on some other boards along the way. Um, and uh, and I, I spent a lot of time with CEOs talking about the value of independent directors and and you know how to get the most out of them. So you've been one for a long time, and now you run a board for the first I, time. I do. Uh, so. <laughs> How has running a board changed the way you act as the independent director on another board? Yes, it's, it, it, that balance of, of of being an independent director versus an operator wasn't really clear to me 100% until I became, um, for all intents and purposes, the head of the board at HANA, the chairman of the board at HANA. Um, although we have a PE firm, Catterton, and they're probably really the chairman of the board. But anyway, you're writing the it, board book, you're leading yeah. the board meeting. Yes. Um, the way I think about the, the, when I get the most help and use out of my board members is when they ask me the questions, is when they provide insights based on their experience. It's not when they lean in and tell me you should do X hmm. or... Um, I did why, and therefore I can like lean in and help you do it in this way. That that's not as helpful. Um, it's really helpful to help me think about things differently or to even 
offer to do introductions. We're doing some product collabs. I've got an independent board member who has a ton of connections. We've asked her for help. That's really helpful for me. Um, and so as an independent director on Cardlytics board, I am less about telling Cardlytics how they should run their marketing department. I didn't really do that in the beginning, but I had stronger opinions. And now I ask questions to try to help them think about things differently. Um, but I don't lean in with like, you guys should be doing X, Y, and Z, because that's not going to be helpful to the CEO. He doesn't really want to be told how he should be running his marketing department. Um, it, it's a tiny bit different in that a Cardlytics, the end customer of Cardlytics is a CMO. And so I have a strong opinion on kind of how they could be positioning stuff as a CMO. But when I'm on the, at the board meetings at Cardlytics, I couch everything with, with I think a lot of CEOs or CMOs feel this way, and you might want to think about it this way, versus you guys need to do X or Y. And I, I think at, as an independent director, you just need to think about the most help you can be giving is helping someone think about things differently versus telling them what to do. So that's a great note to end on. And um, the observation I have uh, uh, is that our, our theme for today has been asking questions. And um, what I learned from you is uh, you like asking questions, which is great, and I do too, but um, you ask them uh, for very different reasons. Sometimes you're asking them to learn, and sometimes you're asking them to teach. That's right. That's right. That's a great, that's an astute observation, Matt. Amy, thank you so much for spending time with me today. It was great to talk to you, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Matt. This has been terrific. I really enjoy working with you and the whole team at Bolster.